Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. The Federal Communications Commission announced this past December a notice for proposed rulemaking on the feasibility of allowing the 12 gigahertz spectrum band to be open to the possibility of both satellite and terrestrial interest using the spectrum and potentially allowing an increased use of the band, possibly for mobile services. This particular band of spectrum has more commercial interest now that we have technologies that can utilize the band with more efficiency. Expanding commercial use of this band could open more spectrum for broadband use, more specifically for mobile 5G build-out. However, there are concerns that the engineering hasn't proven that commercial activity beyond the current incumbents in the band wouldn't possibly interfere with their satellite operations. What are the opportunities to make this frequency available for additional sharing? Or are the incumbents' concerns about harmful interference accurate? Today, I'm joined by two spectrum policy experts, V. Noah Campbell and Richard Bennett. V is the co-founder and CEO of Radium Spectrum Access, a firm that specializes in next-generation wireless solutions that want to use the 12 gigahertz frequency for more mobile operations. And Richard Bennett, one of the co-creators of Wi-Fi and the host of High Tech Forum, and my favorite go-to person on how the engineering wonders of the networks actually function. Richard gives us an engineering perspective on what freeing up spectrum in the 12 gigahertz band will entail, while Noah offers insights on how both industry and the FCC can increase commercial spectrum usage in the 12 gigahertz band and beyond. So, V and Richard, thank you for joining me today to discuss the 12 gigahertz band of spectrum and this key question on whether this swath of spectrum can be better managed by the FCC and allow both deployment of terrestrial mobile services in the band, which could include 5G, alongside of satellite services that are helping close the rural segment of the digital divide. You have had a strong interest in the 12 gigahertz spectrum space for quite a while. Can you explain what you and your firm, Radio Spectrum Access, are seeking to accomplish by requesting the FCC consider additional actions that might further increase the use of the spectrum band? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Shane, for having me. Glad to be discussing 12 gigahertz spectrum and, and my company, RS Access. And you're right, I've been interested in this for, it feels like longer now, but it's about three years that we've been paying very close attention to this band. The reason that we're paying such close attention to it and the reason we've been spending so much time and energy around this band is because it's it's extremely unique. 500 megahertz of contiguous spectrum between 12.2 and 12.7 gigahertz. So not only is it a very deep spectrum position. So for example, the 12, the C-band rather, is about 280 megahertz. This is almost twice what was auctioned in C-band. It's a different portion of the band, of course. But that's what also makes this very unique. It's the only terrestrially licensed frequency. It's a spectrum that's been auctioned and is already licensed for terrestrial use exclusively between sort of the sub-6 frequency and the millimeter wave frequency. So it's a very unique asset. And very briefly, we think that the usage that was assigned to it you know, almost 20 years ago when it was first auctioned is basically obsolete. We think that updating the rules here for this spectrum could create a lot of additional capacity for mobile wireless. And our advocacy before the commission, which thus far has been successful, is to update the rules to bring this portion of frequency into the 5G era. You know, it was really built for the rules at least were conceived in the 1G era, <laughs> not even really the 1G era. It's like years before the iPhone was released. Commissioner Jeffrey Starks noted in his comments on this NPRM that SpaceX and OneWeb have launched over a thousand satellites and invested billions of dollars in relying on access to the 12 gigahertz band to provide services for their customers. 
In his comments, he says that repurposing the 12 gigahertz band would not only damage their ability to serve and compete for customers, but also raises questions about the future of investment in a service that could help close the rural digital divide. But Richard, this is why I really appreciate you being here today, because I have been trying to read up on this and looking for harmful interference, and I realize I am beyond my, my knowledge. So what is your engineering perspective on the process of possibly clearing 12 gigahertz for additional use? Yeah, the, the NPRM, it, just the initial parts, the overview and stuff, gives you a pretty good idea of what's going on there, where there's actually three incumbent users in the 12 gigahertz band. As you say, there's DBS, which is, you know, the DirecTV and Dish Network satellite television system with the small antennas on top, or dishes on top of people's houses. There's SpaceX, who's actually operating on a provisional license in that 12 gigahertz band. And then there's a service called uh, MVDDS, a multi-channel video data distribution system, which is a very quirky little one-way transmission system that's used for things. I think it must be used for like remote broadcasting and things like that. And the MVDDS allocation is the thing that is primarily under consideration for redefinition of what the terms are. These folks want to turn that into a flexible use license rather than the very narrow usage that it's authorized for today. And of course, the, the SpaceX thing really is getting a lot of attention because it's being touted by a lot of people as a potential solution to the digital divide, at least as far as the rural stuff goes. The SpaceX is running, or SpaceX, which is actually the system's called Starlink, but you know, to most people, it's the Elon Musk satellite system. Mm -hmm. They're running a beta test now, and a friend of mine, and actually former guest on the High Tech Forum podcast, Tom Eslin, is one of the participants in it, and I'm going to do my own podcast with him pretty soon to talk about it. But it seems to be working reasonably well for people that live in rural areas where they don't really have a good high-speed broadband alternative. There are some issues. It's far from perfect. It's definitely a beta test quality product, but you know they hope to build on that. But the thing is, the Starlink system is actually running in three different frequency bands. So it is possible in principle for it to surrender its use of the 12 gigahertz band and concentrate on the other two bands, which are like the KANKU, but they don't want to because they like the big fat allocation that's in the, in the 12 gigahertz band. And they, they feel like, you know, their service is a pretty cool thing. So the commission is trying to figure out whether they can modify the rules for that apply to the three different incumbents or whether they just need to start over and create a whole new sharing framework. And the existing sharing framework is, it's like a lot of things, you know, you see in, in Washington that looks like a building that's had called multiple coats of paint slapped on it over a hundred <laughs> years period. You know, there's like allocations on top of allocations and it has some just really strange conditions. Like the three services are all considered to be co-equal in terms of their right to access the spectrum. But DBS is more equal than the others because the other two allocations services actually run on the principle that they can't cause undue interference to DBS users. But there's a quirk where if you, so when you build an MVDDS system, you have to coordinate it with the existing DBS, right? But once you've done that, if, if the DBS operator installs new, new dishes, they have to be non-interfering with the MVDDS. So the, the, the priority rights, you know, it's sort of the first come first serve model in many cases. And, you know, that's, it's probably, it probably would be good in principle to just sort of 
erase it, start over with a blank slate and maybe come up with something like CBRS. But, you know, that's not the kind of thing that that the FCC does very well. So I expect what we're going to see is more kind of incremental fiddling around the edges and exploring the possibility of enabling some 5G access in the 12 gigahertz band. I think the most recent FCC commissioners have shown more of an interest in in doing what you're, you're saying. When you mentioned the building, it makes me think about just clearing the space altogether and starting over, which we see a lot of downtown areas doing that. And I can I can visualize that in this space as well. When you're talking about you know strange conditions, makes me want to go look those up. But Commissioner Carr noted in his comments on the FCC NPRM that you know he's really looking to see you know whether additional authorization would promote or hinder delivery of next generation services. Kind of this open question, which I think means there there at least is an appetite to have this discussion. So, V, thoughts on what Richard just mentioned? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think his his read of it is accurate in terms of the way that they set up the rules. You know, there's a, a really sort of quirky history here to how these rules came to be. I won't get into the whole thing, but readers of frequency books and you know, spectrum history stuff, there's a whole section in Tom Hazlett's book, The Political Spectrum, which talks about the history here of the company called North Point. But he's right. The, the rules are very quirky and they're about 20 years old. And I think he's right. I think that there's a appetite for making some changes such that this frequency can be used for 5G. I mean, the fact of the matter is that spectrum is finite. And it's very difficult to identify greenfield frequency opportunities. In fact, it's getting to be close to impossible. You know, the days where you could just sort of say, hey, people aren't using this band. Let's just auction it. You know, there are no government users or whoever may be there. Those days are over. And so companies and regulators have to be very creative about looking all around the band plan to identify frequency that can be reused. And this just meets, for me, this just checks, you know, all of the boxes or spectrum that can be in a fairly straightforward way, you know, to have some rule changes here that would make it really, really useful. And I would just add just to Richard's additional point about the NGSO allocation. I think this is actually really straightforward, you know, and, and our advocacy is not to remove them from the band, although he's correct when he points out that there's a conditional license in place for, for both OneWeb and Starlink. I think from an engineering standpoint, this is going to end up being a win-win in terms of having 5G services and NGSO services side by side. I don't think it's going to be an either or. I think it's going to be an end. So what are the consumer benefits if the FCC does decide to expand the 12 gigahertz band beyond their current use? It's sort of astonishing. A lot of people don't, don't realize this, but there are over 400 million U.S. mobile subscribers, 400 million in a country of about 340 million people. So, I'm guilty of having more than one, I admit. <laughs> yeah, as, as am I. As are a lot of people. And it's the demand for bandwidth over those devices is massive. And it's not waning. It's In fact, it's increasing. And so the consumer benefits here, I think, are really straightforward. You can add a huge amount of capacity relatively easily and relatively quickly to the US 5G mobile ecosystem. And that has radical consumer benefits, has radical competitive benefits. And you don't have to give anything up if the engineering shows that you're not going to impact NGSO users. So it's really clear that if you can do both things, it makes perfect sense to do both things for both sets of subscribers. Richard, you, from what I hear you saying, you think that this is possible without harmful interference. We just need to give a little leeway, but not as much as maybe the original licenses were asking for. Well, I think it is possible to de-emphasize the role of DBS in the spectrum and and come up with a more efficient sharing framework that would work across 
NVDDS and 5G, or between 5G and, and really the low Earth orbit satellites. I think that it's possible to, at least in principle, to conceive of a way that those two services could coordinate with each other and with a minimum of interference. But it it really does require a good faith effort on the part of the parties that have an interest in, in those two sets of services, with some benevolence on the part of the FCC to let those folks, you know, come up with, with engineering solutions that make sense. And, you know, some people think it's a fairly straightforward proposition to share the spectrum between these two services today, because there are tools in the toolkit that we, you know, that we didn't have in 1980 when, you know, the first allocation was made to DBS in the 12 gigahertz band, like beam forming and space division multiple access so that you can essentially make the radio signals act more like wires. So instead of a broad based coverage of a, of a huge area with, you know, from one transmitter, you have narrow beams and you, you, can, you can have conversations across a neighborhood or a city that where the energy is focused more, you know, between the, the ideal, the selected transmitter, selected receiver, and it doesn't spill over and affect other people who aren't part of the, part of the conversation. That's kind of where we're going. The question is, are we there yet? To what extent is it, is it genuinely possible to have 5G conversations overlaid on top of the NGSO satellite network without causing harmful interference? We do know how to coordinate between NGSO and, and DBS you know, fairly easily because DBS satellites all point to the southern sky and the NGSO satellite dishes you know, tend to point more upwards. So the, the signals tend to avoid each other. And the thing that you want you want to avoid is having signals fall on too many receivers. So that, that's pretty well taken care of between those two apps. But between NGSO and 5G, I think there's just a lot of work that needs to be done on not just modeling the interference characteristics of those two apps operating on top of each other at the same time, but also probably some, some field trials to confirm that the model assumptions are correct. It's certainly possible in principle to do it. But, you know, it's both a complicated technical problem that requires a great amount of coordination. And it's also like probably a geopolitical problem where there has to be a willingness on the part of the parties, not just in the U.S. I mean, mind you, this is a global, this is a global situation because the NGSO networks, you know, cover the whole planet. And there are international agreements about the use of 12 gigahertz spectrum. So where the United States is not completely free to come up with its own solution here, it should be at least, you know, pay some, just a little tip of the hat to the international requirements. Yeah, I imagine with satellites, you have a different level of, of interest on in that. So the question that comes to mind is, you know, is this aspirational in the plan or as we're very guilty of doing in the policy space is asking engineers and technologists just to nerd harder? <laughs> like just, you guys, it seems like it should work. Just go figure it out, guys. So what is the process now that you have an interest in, I mean, I'll just call it a friction point between people that want to use this same asset. One group thinks that there's definitively a better use and we just, you know, if we put new technology in place versus those who would rather just have a little more breathing room and space. I'm thinking about SpaceX specifically, especially since they recently won a $900 million universal service fund in the Ardoff auction. So how does the FCC and the, the entities that wish for a change move forward? I'm happy to answer that first, Shane, if you'd like. And the truth here is that you really don't have to nerd that hard okay. <laughs> to figure this out. 
this isn't going to take, you know, a conference of nerds, or I don't know what the term of entry is for nerds, but this isn't going to take too much, really too much to figure out. And I was on a panel in January with another expert in frequency, a really smart guy named Michael Calabrese, and he pointed out something that has really, I think, resonated with me, which is that sharing is sort of, it's already built into this band. And to Richard's point, there is a coexistence regime that's in place right now between these three services. And it's super duper wonky. It takes, you know, three or four months. It's paper driven. It's antiquated. And our research and the folks with whom we've spoken have indicated that you could take that three months or four months and move it down to, you know, three milliseconds or four milliseconds to coordinate this, which is what some of these automated frequency sharing systems do. We don't think we're going to need that here. The other thing to keep in mind is that this spectrum is really, there's really kind of an inside out element to it, right? Like the services that the NGSO entities seek to provide are predominantly extremely rural services. Now, 12 gigahertz propagates much, much better than 24 gigahertz or millimeter wave spectrum does. But this will predominantly be just like a lot of other densification, C-band densification or EBS densification 2.5 or, or even before that, AWS, this will be an inside-out band from 5G services standpoint, right? So you're looking at urban, suburban. There will be rural applications, probably fixed rural applications, but it sort of naturally makes sense with the way that these dif- different markets are going to develop. Like, don't take my word for it. You can look at the commentary from SpaceX and from the CEO of SpaceX and the founder of SpaceX who said, our service is really going to be a very rural service. We don't have you know, a huge amount of capacity offering services in urban areas. 12 gigahertz actually built, <laughs> the propagation and the capacity of it is actually built for urban and suburban areas. Not to say there won't be services in rural areas that will. So there's sort of a natural difference between the markets here and a pre-built-in sharing regime within the band that just needs to be expanded on a little bit. It's not going to take you know, crunching huge amounts of data and a whole you know, years and years and years. This, this can be done really quickly. That sounds hopeful, especially since yeah, Elon Musk coming in with SpaceX. And as Richard mentioned, he knows somebody, and I've talked to some people in Virginia that have been very happy with their being in the Petri dish, learning how this is all going to work. But we also have had, we have a friction point just on broadband adoption, especially after COVID and trying to figure out where we place all these funds, even though lately we just spend trillions of dollars, like nobody ever has to pay for it. So maybe we'll all look at and we'll all get what we want. But the idea that you you can use this at every level, and this doesn't have to be necessarily a rural versus an urban choice, would seem to be ideal. The question is now, is there the political will? Have we seen that to kind of make newer decisions about this space? I know you've been working on this for a while. So what are you guys looking for specifically when you're talking to the FCC? I know you're looking at the NPRM. I mean, I think there absolutely is the political will, and it's bipartisan. This is not a partisan issue. It's consistent across different administrations. And this NPRM was voted on, it passed unanimously. It was a 5-0 in the waning days of the Pi administration, the Pi FCC. And immediately with this, the Rosenworcel FCC, they've just taken up the exact same language that was used in the last administration. This, is, this isn't a partisan issue. It's more frequency. It's very difficult to find frequency. Very, very difficult. It's getting more difficult because as it goes into networks or as it's auctioned, it's basically in networks. The only way that you can that it changes hands is through acquisitions of companies, which is very, very complex. So our ask of the commission until January is very simple. Let's take a look at this. We should study it. It's valuable enough and important enough for, for the country and for our national interests that we do so. SEC agreed unanimously to do so. And the rhetoric coming from the commissioners and from the chair 
looking for a win-win to your point earlier, Shane, or, or looking for creative solutions, we absolutely embrace those. We absolutely embrace that mandate. And our mandate is to figure out a way, which I think is going to be pretty straightforward, to have both services so it's not a trade-off. And I think we can do that, like I said, relatively quickly. Our ask is to be given a chance to prove the engineering, which we're doing, to recognize the economic benefits and to recognize the policy benefits. And you know, we're very grateful to the commission for opening this NPRM and we're very much looking forward to participating robustly in the process. Richard, I'm going to go back to something you said a little bit earlier. You mentioned that SpaceX has a flexible use license. And what are the changes that, I mean, that makes me wonder if like, I know Amazon who has Project Hyper coming off the drawing board and up into space has been concerned about them continuing to like actually want to spread their wings a little further and want more of this 12 gigahertz space, which is not good for others that want in there. What do they do with a flexible use license? I mean, is that something that can be tightened down or is like just give them carte blanche? How does that work? Well, I mean, that that's actually what these people are asking for it because the, the license that they have is is very restricted. The MVDDS license is one directional transmission with some fairly narrow bandwidth parameters. And so they are trying to expand that into a flexible use license for the for their access to the 12 gigahertz spectrum. The SpaceX thing is I guess you could say it's flexible use, but it's flexible use in the context of the location that their satellites are going to have in the sky and the location that the DBS satellites already have. So, I mean, what's really what's really at stake here is the question of adding, of making the third service in the 12 gigahertz band a bidirectional service, because that's what, and terrestrial, which is what it would have to do in order to provide 5G service, you know, on the ground. I mean... There's certainly not a unanimous opinion on the part of the nerd American population that this is a straightforward proposition and can be easily done. There's a lot of concern about the the fact that these DBS receivers are, you know, very sensitive to the power levels that 5G-like devices generate. And if you've got bidirectional signals in the 12 gigahertz band all over the place, we don't precisely know what the what the side effects are going to be on on DBS, but we we suspect there will be some. And there is, in fact, what's been filed with the commission in response to the NPRM is a series of engineering studies from both the people that want to proceed with the dual use or with the bidirectional authorization for 5G services and people who, who don't. Some of the incumbents that operate DBS services in the band are, well, one of them likes the idea of flexible use and the other one doesn't. So even within the same industry, there, there are different perspectives on exactly what the noise modeling and, and the interference mitigation process is going to come up with. So it's not, I mean, all these, these kind of nerd issues, I think a lot of times non-nerds think it's easier than it really is. You know, it's kind of like science. So you don't minimize the hazards here. I mean, there are some very, very detailed questions that need to be answered. We need to know exactly what kind of power flux densities are going to be permissible. And we need to know what the limitations are in terms of the, the angle of transmission relative to the horizon. And I mean, there are a lot of really you know, detailed numbers that have to be committed to paper that where they can be verified before you know, these three services can all happily play together in the same, in the same space. Yeah, Sparks mentioned in his comments on the NPRM that back in April of 2016, in one of the filings, the petitioners clearly stated that mobile wireless operations cannot coexist in the 12 gigahertz bands with the NGSO satellite broadband 
So he also mentions this is a service that was still largely on the drawing board at the time in 2016. So have we learned enough now and we just need to get proof points to the people that make decisions? Is that where we are in staging this next phase? Hey, Shane, if I could just address that 2016 study question, because this is really important and it's been thrown around a lot. And I'll just give just the brief history of of it here. And the short answer is, yes, we have reached the stage where we can engage with the commission in the engineering and to Richard's point, you know, there are, there are some subtleties that have to be addressed. We're totally confident they can be addressed. But in terms of the 2016 study, this is really important. In 2016, when the MBDDS coalition filed the petition for rulemaking here, Starlink did not have an allocation in this band. They didn't have a conditional allocation in the band. OneWeb did not have a conditional allocation in the band. In fact, those satellite constellations, I'm not saying anything negative about them. These are just, this is just true. Those satellite constellations hadn't even been envisioned. So the idea and I'd like to hear Richard comment on this too, the idea of, an, of, of a low-Earth orbit satellite system, in fact, there is a low-Earth orbit satellite system operating right now. It's called Iridium. And Iridium is a service that has 66 satellites. It doesn't have 66,000 satellites. <laughs> that is a huge, huge difference. And so when that study came out, that study was using, and I know because we're using the same, one of the same engineers who did that study, that study was assuming an Iridium-type service. And I won't get into all the elements of this, but to Richard's earlier point, which is accurate, a satellite service that uses 66 satellites, it has a receiver that looks throughout the entire sky, right? It looks horizon to horizon. These satellite, these mega constellation satellite systems, 40,000, 80,000, you know, satellites, they have an aperture that looks directly up. And that creates a radically different, much, much different interference environment than we could have ever assumed in 2016 before these companies were even anywhere close to operational, much less having access to the band at all, period, which they didn't have in 2016. So that that isn't any kind of like <laughs> change in position out of commercial or political expedience or anything like that. That's just a straight up engineering question. And we'll, we'll file comments on this. I've talked about all this before, but I just, people say things like that, like, oh, 2016, they said this, now they're saying something different. It's not us changing a position. It's because the technology has changed so rapidly over the last five years to be not even recognizable. I'm sorry. I know I'm. I'm not. No, no, it's a, it's a really, I'm not really, an engineer. <laughs> right. But it's a valid point. I mean, right. it's and we've seen this tighten in many spectrum bands, and this is just the one that we're specifically focusing on today. But you know, there's a lot of things that it's kind of like decisions were made. People walked away from them. They didn't try to make more out of it. But I think that you know, one of the things that we've seen with digitization in general is we can be much more precise and much more specific about how we use things. I know Richard has a you know long history of doing this and on multiple levels and satellite is just one of them. But yeah, in 2016 to 2021 is light years when you're looking at some of this stuff. So I'm sure that the engineering does matter. And, you know, there's a lot of studies that I'm sure we'd all like to read to make sure that we're not, you know, people are spending billions of dollars on this on both sides. So you you want to make sure that you're using, you know, an, an accurate measurement to make sure that we're accessing the 12 gigahertz bands to provide service to the customers in whatever medium it is to either urban, rural, but that's a very valid point. We've had five years to really learn more about this. No, I mean, this to me, what's going on here is we have a really fine illustration of what the FCC's essentially new mission is. So when it's not playing about with largely symbolic, but fundamentally insubstantial issues like net neutrality, the FCC has the mission of taking basically all the spectrum of interest has already been allocated to one application or another. And in many cases like this one to several, but over the course of time, you know, these, some of these old systems are no longer, are no longer worthwhile. And that spectrum needs to be reallocated to a new higher, higher value system. 
And that's just, that's what's going on here. We have an allocation that probably what in back in originally might've, might've been allocated to something like, you know, microwave telephone service. And then 1980, it was reallocated to DBS. And then 15 years later, lo and behold, we actually had satellites in the sky that could use this, use the DBS spectrum. The one-way allocation for MVDDS, you know, is probably going to give way to a two-way 5G allocation at some point. And to me, I mean, you know, we'll look at this problem from an engineering perspective, you know, it, it highlights to me the fact that the, in principle, the kind of technology that's behind an NGSO system like Starlink or the, the new Amazon thing, it's a 5G-like application, but it, it doesn't precisely use 5G. Now, wouldn't it be something if the technology that was used by NGSOs was such that 5G was a plug-and-play component of it? So you build one network, and it's 5G all the way from the ground to the stars. That actually is the vision for 5G that a lot of the engineers that did the pioneering work on it you know, have. So the need here is for partially a technical model of coordination between NGSOs and 5G, partly a model of political and economic cooperation you know, managed by the FCC, and actually a new sense of what the FCC's mission is as a to see if it starts to see itself as a facilitator of advanced communication technologies emerging from the lab and going into the marketplace where they can happily coexist with incumbent services, you know, that's really what we want the FCC to be, to the extent that it can stay out of kind of pointless political fights, like I said, net neutrality, that'd be great for everybody. The FCC is really good at this, right? The FCC leads the world at this, and they've been doing it successfully and leading the world at it for 40 years. So they really are a model globally for how to repurpose frequency and update frequency rules such that they can be used, general frequency can be used more efficiently. This is just an, another iteration of that same process that Richard's pointing out. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, not at all. You guys have put, put a lot of thought towards this. The one thing, and this is probably for a whole other podcast, is the you know defining broadband as 100, 100. You know, right now, it makes a lot of people question you know, who are making decisions and what is the background and what they're choosing to make these decisions. And so the idea of being more transparent using, you know, both economic modeling, engineering data is, I think, what we all would like to see more of because this is such an important asset and it's not as rigid as we thought it was years ago. We're learning about, you know, exceptionally because of digital capability, the ability to use this in a much more tight phase. So I think you've brought up a lot of really good questions. Any last thoughts for the good of the order, gentlemen? The one thing I'd like to say is that I, I hope Congress stays out of this. I mean, looking at the <laughs> kind of nonsense that's going on on Capitol Hill in terms of the definition of broadband as a symmetrical service all of a sudden, yeah. when you know, right. people have never used broadband as a symmetrical service, it's like, the, you know, look at any kind of engineering measurements. You got 10 to 15 times as much download as upload. So why would you? go out and spend taxpayer money on on services that nobody's ever going to use. But, you know, on Capitol Hill, that turns into a bidding war. So the 100 megabit per second symmetrical crowd is bidding against the gigabit symmetrical crowd to, you know, see who can come up with the most aspirational standard that will not really be future-proof because there's no such thing. Yeah, I mean, just to echo Richard's point, I think the FCC is eminently, you know, qualified. They have a track record of global leadership in doing exactly what we're doing here. And their engineers are world-class. And I think from a policy standpoint, they let the parties participate in the process. You know, there's an initial comments, there's a reply comments. 
literally anybody can weigh in here. So there's total transparency. Any citizen, anybody can let their thoughts be known here. We encourage people to do that. And we have total confidence that the FCC will you know, manage this appropriately and successfully. And we're looking forward to it. And we're, I don't know if it comes across. It's, it's really exciting. We're, we're very excited to be doing what we're doing. We think we're going to come out with a result that's highly beneficial for all parties. Well, I think we're all going to be waiting to see what happens with the NPRM and what the next steps are. This has been a fascinating discussion. So I thank you both for, for bringing this to my attention and discussing it. And we'll, we'll see what happens from here. So thank you for being guests on Explain to Shane today. Thank you, Shane. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.